Good morning. It is lovely to see, actually see you all this morning in this park on this could not have asked for a more glorious day outside for Easter morning. And it's wonderful to be together again. A little over a year ago, I went straight from defending my thesis in Boston, where there were rumors circulating of a virus and fears and concerns being whispered back and forth. And I had a little bit of trepidation. Should I get on the tube? Should I use this public transportation? What's going on? Nobody knew. I went straight from there to a meeting in Asheville where Minute by minute, it seemed, the rules for how we could gather in this meeting started changing and the world began to shut down and pulling into my driveway from that meeting on March 15th, little by little, I learned that I would not be pulling out of that driveway hardly above a dozen times for the next 13 months. And I said at the time, when this church gathers again in person, face to face, because we missed this Easter, it doesn't matter when it is, we are going to celebrate Easter. And I had no idea, no idea that it would actually be Easter a year later. And it's been isolating and it's been lonely. And because I have had a large safety net of loving people, including you people whom I have missed, I have been so fortunate. So coming at today's story, which is a very familiar one that I know I have preached on Easter more than once, I'm coming at it with a little different lens than in years before, perhaps. We went through some of Jesus' I am statements during Advent when he said, basically, I am God. Last week for Palm Sunday, we went through I am the vine and you are the branches. And now at Easter, we're going to look at a very common Easter story where he says the ultimate I am. I am the resurrection and the life. What does that mean on Easter at the end of a year of this magnitude of anger, fear, injustice, and death? And there are some things to note in this story that I maybe have not noticed before. To tell, give you some background in the story, Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his dear friends, the sisters send word to him to Jesus that their brother is dying. They are close friends. He has stayed in their home. There is evidence that they traveled with him as disciples. Yes, Mary and Martha, full-blown traveling disciples, perhaps, of Jesus. So Lazarus is no mere acquaintance of his. He is loved. He is a friend. He is a brother. He is a loved one, as so many we have lost this year have been. But Jesus waits for a couple of days. And then he starts walking to their home in Bethany where this trio lives. But as we pick up the story in John 11, he appears to be too late. John 11, starting in verse 20, Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Master, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, he will give you. Your brother will be raised up. I know that he will be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. You don't have to wait for the end. I am right now resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. 
Do you believe this? Yes, master. All along, I have believed that you are the Messiah, the son of God who comes into the world. After saying this, she went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, the teacher is here and he is asking for you. The moment Mary heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to Lazarus' tomb to weep there. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing and those with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him, and he said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. And there are a lot of things to note in this passage, but the first thing that I note here, Mary did not follow her sister out of the house. We don't know why. Maybe she had practical reasons. Maybe she was tending the fire. Maybe she was grabbing the casseroles the neighbors were bringing. I don't know. But she knew Jesus was there. And she didn't follow Martha out of the house to meet him. And I wonder if maybe she was not feeling like seeing Jesus. Maybe she was mad. Maybe she was sitting in her home wrapped in her grief and she thought, I'm not running out to see him. He didn't come. My brother is dead. And Jesus didn't stop it from happening, even though he said he loved us. Jesus let me down. And make no mistake, it's not just that Mary and Martha have lost a most beloved brother. They are terrified at this point. Because without a brother, without a father, without a husband in their lives to take care of them, to support them, their future is bleak. Their future is terrifying. And so it is a lot going on for Mary and Martha. And we don't know. We don't know why Mary did not go, but it is possible given how much we know, how much she loved him and her past of sitting at his feet in rapt attention, she did not run to meet him. And I wonder if she was angry. But when she hears Martha whisper in her ear that he has asked for her specifically, she cannot help but run. And maybe it's not dignified to run and meet Jesus. And he's not just at the end of the driveway, guys. He's still out of town. A lady might have walked carefully to meet her Jesus, but Mary runs all this way. And it's as if every emotion she has been feeling wells up and she just jumps up from her spot and she runs headlong into, she is not quite sure what. Have you ever had that happen? Where you have just run off and you're not even sure what. Where you've just sat down to have a big ugly cry because it's what happened and it's what came out and you don't know what's after that. I know that more than once this last year, I've just left my house and driven off to I don't know where <laughs> because anything to get out of my house because all the feelings are too much and I'm not going anywhere in particular and nowhere and I don't know where, but I'm just going. And sometimes we have those feelings and we don't know what to do with them and we just run. 
But Mary makes a really good choice here. Even though she's angry and she's distraught with grief, she runs toward Jesus. Even though she is probably not seeing straight, she's probably got wet hair in her eyes and who knows what, she runs to Jesus. Even though her feelings are all over the place and she probably does not know what she's going to do when she gets to him, she runs toward him. And Martha does too. And isn't it beautiful that we can too, no matter what our state, no matter what our feelings, no matter what our understanding of what is going on, we can too. So that's the first new thing I'm seeing here this year in this story. That when we're sad, angry, frustrated, hurt, grieving, terrified, we can run toward Jesus with all those emotions. We can run toward Jesus because he can handle them. He hung on a cross and he cried out in his loneliness, his hopelessness, his anger, his grief, betrayal, pain, and fear. God, why have you forsaken me? So he knows those emotions and he can handle them. And he will not turn away from you if you bring them toward him. So we run toward Jesus, not away. There was a point in my life when I lost so many people, when I was a fairly new Christian. And I had this choice set before me. Do I run toward Jesus or do I run away from Jesus? Because both are options right now in my grief and anger. And fortunately, God led me to make the right choice. Run toward Jesus. And then the next thing I see here, the line where it says, when Jesus saw her sobbing and those with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. And he said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. Why do you think Jesus was angry? Why do you think Jesus wept? I think it's because he saw her grief and her pain and he was angry. Not ever at her, not at their lack of faith because they show amazing faith. They both say, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. That's pretty incredible faith right there. But he is angry at death. He is angry at grief. He is angry at pain. Jesus of all to have ever walked this earth knew that this was not how it was supposed to be. Death was never supposed to win. Tears were never supposed to be shed. Sobbing, body-racking grief was never supposed to have felt, been felt by the human beings he created and he loves. And Jesus is angry because his beautiful creation is broken and it weeps and it groans. His creation, yes, it is. Because Paul writes in Colossians 1, for in the Son, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Jesus knew how it was supposed to have gone down because he was there. And he knew the perfect created world where there was no grief and there was no pain. But Paul also writes this in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
Jesus wept. Maybe it's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it is not the least important. Maybe it's one of the most important. Jesus wept at all that he had meant to be for us and all that isn't. The world is broken. Bad things happen. Bad people win and he weeps. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he does. Jesus wept in 2020 when someone you love died alone in the hospital. Jesus wept in 2020 when someone you love believed foolish lies that, that left them filled with hate and anger. Jesus wept when Ahmaud Aubrey was lynched in the streets. Jesus wept when George Floyd was murdered in front of a helpless crowd. Jesus wept and he was angry. And so he can hold your anger and your tears, however significant or insignificant you think they are because he wept. But here's another thing to note in this resurrection story. Jesus is angry and he's sorrow filled at the injustices and the wrong in this world and his people need to be too. He was angry and he was sorrow filled enough to die on a cross on what we call Good Friday. And what was the purpose of that death? Well, that's where we come to those famous lines in John 11 where he tells Martha, you don't have to wait for the end. I am right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? And maybe that hits differently for us this year. Because Martha didn't have to wait till the end. They didn't because their brother came back to life like a half an hour later. But some of us do. Most of us do have to wait. So what does it mean for us that Jesus says he is resurrection and life? Because we're not getting that now. We're getting death. And those people are not coming back. What on earth does it mean right now for us, that I am statement? Because if it was true then that he is resurrection in life, he is still a resurrection in life today, now. So let's turn back to Romans 8, where Paul told us that creation groans and we groan and it is painful, but it is for a purpose because it's a birth. Romans 8, starting in verse 22, all around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs, but it's not only around us, it's within us. The spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us. Any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We of course don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside helping us along. The entire creation and us and our hearts and our souls knows that a birth is coming. Ladies, those of us here who have done that, given birth, we know. We know the pain, right? <laughs> It's not comfortable. None of the experience is fun or comfortable. Okay, some of it is fun, but 
most of us don't like to be pregnant. And I, most of us don't like the pain of childbirth, but it's worth it because we know what's coming. We know there's a birth. The entire creation knows there's a birth coming. The entire creation knows death is not the end. Death does not win. And 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us this other, these other beautiful words, this victorious shout. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. This mortal replaced by the immortal. This, then the saying will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, oh death, is your victory? Where, oh death, is your sting? What difference did the cross make? C.S. Lewis said in the Narnia Chronicles, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. My friends, death itself has started to work backward. We still see an awful lot of it, but at the cross, the process began and at the resurrection, the process won. The old order cracked, sin and death lost. Because a willing victim, Jesus Christ, the I am, God himself, came to us when we had no ability to change the order of death ourselves. God said, I will do this thing. I will myself make the sacrifice that humans cannot make in order to begin the restoration of all things. And when that happens, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said that at the beginning of his work in Luke 4, the very start of all of this, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he sealed it at the end when he rose from the dead. Creation and we groan in pain, but it is not pain to no purpose. It is the pain of birth. The new creation is at hand and we are it. We are its members. We are the ones charged with reconciling, recreating, reimagining, rebuilding. And when we can't do it, when the burden becomes too great and the grief too much, as it really has this year for so many of us. Did you hear that last line in the Romans 8 story? Meanwhile, it said, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside helping us along. We are enlarged in the waiting. We are greater and more able to ward off evil and fight injustice because the spirit of God is with us and death has been defeated and that means something. But we will grow tired. It will become too much. Isaiah told us that. Chapter 40 says he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. He says we will get tired. Even the invincible young will get tired. It will get hard. But Jesus also said, take heart, because I have overcome this world. God will renew our strength. God's spirit is right alongside, helping us along. Because of Easter morning, 
because of the truth that both Martha and Mary declared independently before anyone else ever had said these words, two women did. All along, I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. You are the resurrection and the life. Amen.